So hey, welcome uh, to Renaissance, to everybody who made it out this morning through the snow, sleet, hail, salt, and all the other stuff that was on the roads. Uh, If I haven't met you, my name's Clay, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really excited that you are here this morning. And if you are a guest here, we have actually a special prize for you for making it out to the uh, 845 service in the middle of the snow, and you can collect that at the guest center if uh, if you would like to do that. So... This video is, uh, is one of my favorites, and I actually asked if we could uh, show that video because of the one scene where uh, they're having the banter back and forth, and the shepherd named Thomas kind of with this, you know, I love the British accent, and he says, so you're telling me that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, the Savior of the world is sitting there in a feed trough. You know, and I love that. And then uh, the one named Joseph says, no, 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 it's a manger, not a feed trough. And it's, you know, makes it sound, and then makes it sound so cheap and that whole thing. And the idea there, this just captures perfectly the issue of the expectation that the Jewish people had back in the first century for who the Messiah was going to be, how he was going to be born, what he was going to be like, and just kind of the, the, irony and the unexpected nature of Jesus' birth. Who would have expected Jesus, who would have expected the Messiah to be born in the obscure little town of Bethlehem, a few miles outside of Jerusalem? You'd expect that the Messiah is going to be born in the capital city, you know, in Jerusalem. Who would have expected him to be born to an unwed mother? You know, where, where did that one come from? Who would have expected him to be born in a barn, okay, a stable, you know, a barn, and his first crib to be a feed trough? You know, he should have been born in Beth Israel Hospital or at least in, you know, the Hyatt Regency Tel Aviv or or, or something like that. Who would have expected the Messiah, if you were in the first century, who would have expected the Messiah to be born to a working class family. Joseph is a carpenter. Jesus grew up as a carpenter, essentially. You would have expected him to have been born into royalty, not into a poor, lower class, working class uh, kind of a family. Who would have expected that the first announcement of Jesus' birth would come to a bunch of shepherds, and then they are the ones that go and tell everybody else about it. It's, it's just, it's not what you would have expected. You would have expected something like, you know, the, in, the, in the society section of the Jerusalem Post. And, and we could go on and on and on about the unexpected and, in a sense, ironic nature of Jesus' birth and, and how that happened there. So what I want to do this morning is take a little bit of time to look at some more of those details and then to apply that to our lives. So let's take a look. Let's continue on in Luke's account of uh, the, the story of the shepherds. Luke continues writing, and he says, When the angels had left them, had left the shepherds, and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger in the feed trough, And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. 
we don't typically see a lot of shepherds around here. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were looking at, at Psalm 23. Um, but if you look back into the first century and ask yourself, how were shepherds viewed then? They were essentially the overlooked people of society. And I was trying to think of, of examples of who the equivalent would be today. And that would be, you know, the men and women who cleared the streets for us. I mean, how many of us know people who plow the streets, yet without them, we wouldn't have made it to church here this morning? Or the toll booth collectors, you know, and, and every time that we go through a toll booth on the Garden State Parkway and stop and pay the toll, and actually, quick aside here, I was told, don't say that because people will know that you don't have easy pass, you know, and said, hey, that's who I am, I don't have easy pass, and I'm proud of it because it means that I get to talk to the toll booth collectors, and every time we go through, my wife and daughter always say to me, make sure you say at least seven words to the toll booth collectors, they've got a difficult job, it's one of the most depressing jobs, etc., so I'm always thinking, how can I say at least seven words to them, and I usually come up with five or six, and as we're driving past, they're like, you're supposed to say seven words, and now they're going to be all depressed, and you know that... It's like, heap the guilt. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, they actually do say to me that. And, and we overlook people like toll booth collectors or the municipal workers or the guys in the booth. I mean, if it weren't for the guys in the booth, you wouldn't be able to hear me this morning. And so, you know, we, we appreciate that. We overlook these people. And our society sometimes says that they're not important. They're not as valuable as, and and you pick the person, but in God's sight, that's absolutely not true. He chose to announce the Messiah's birth first to a bunch of shepherds. Who would have expected that? That's not the way that it was in, in the first century Jewish mind, that's not the way that it was supposed to happen. It should have been announced first to the religious leaders and then to the political leaders and on and on and on, and the news would have trickled down to the shepherds. But no, God says, I'm announcing it first to the shepherds. And that's part of the unexpected nature of Jesus' birth. And during that time frame, during that time period, Israel was occupied by the Romans. They'd come in uh, some centuries earlier, taken over the nation of Israel. Uh, They had appointed leaders, and so uh, Herod, who we're going to talk about in a minute, had been appointed over the land of Judea. And the people are paying taxes to this foreign occupying power. They don't like it, and they're looking for deliverance. They're looking for someone to set them free. Kind of like when Moses... Uh, when God used Moses to help them get out of the nation of, of Egypt when they were in slavery there for 400 years. In the same way, they lurk, they're looking for one. They're looking for the Messiah, for the Savior to come and to lead them out of, uh, of, of bondage, in a sense, to Rome. So they're looking for either a powerful military leader or a powerful political leader or perhaps just a charismatic leader, someone who uh, can, can just get the people all together and they're going to be able to rise up either violently or not and overthrow uh, Roman domination. So this is what they're looking for. And instead, they get this baby born to a working-class family in a relatively obscure town who's born in a barn and his first crib is a feed trough. And it's like, What's going on here? Why 
Why would God do this? Why does he do this in this unexpected way? They're expecting royalty. They're expecting power. They're expecting influence. And instead, God gives them poverty and humility and obscurity. And What is God trying to do in this situation? I want us to, to continue with uh, a scene that occurs somewhere between 6 and 20 months or so after the birth of Jesus. And this is when the Magi, uh, who are wise men, perhaps astrologers, perhaps priests, who come from the east to visit Jesus. And I want us to take a look at this and see how this kind of fits in with what we're talking about. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked... Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So where is this one who's been born king of the Jews? So the Magi come from the east. These are, and ironically, these are Gentiles. These are non-Jews. And you'd expect that you'd have, you know, Jewish religious leaders, that you'd have Jewish political leaders coming. But instead, God sends a group of Gentiles to come and to worship the, the, the newborn Messiah. And the irony would not have been lost in the Jewish people as they're, as they're reading this story. They, wouldn't, they would never have expected the Gentiles to be among the first people to come to, to see him. And so then, then we've got this character, Herod, King Herod, or Herod the Great. Herod was Jewish, uh, and he was appointed by Rome to be the, quote-unquote, and this was the title that the Roman Senate gave him, the king of the Jews. And so he was over the area of Judea, which would have included Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, Jerusalem, the major city there, and all the surrounding towns and, and cities around that. And so Herod was appointed by the Romans to govern the Jews, and the Jews hated Herod, partly because he was appointed by Rome, and partly because he was the equivalent of the Saddam Hussein of his day. And there was this, this saying that went out about Herod, um, and there's a pun in Greek, the way it works together, where it says, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. And those two words sound very much alike in Greek. And the idea was uh, that Herod had actually killed three of his sons, because they, he was concerned that they were going to rise up against him and try to overthrow him. And so they're saying, I'd rather be his pig because you got more chance of survival than if you're one of his sons. And he had killed hundreds of people. He had killed several of his sons. He was just a, a horrible person. And the people really hated him and feared him uh, and, and you know, would have wished for anybody but Herod uh, to rule over them. And the irony or the contrast between Herod and Jesus is that Herod was appointed king by the Romans, but Jesus was born king of the Jews. And as a result, Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne. And so when Herod hears that someone's been born king of the Jews, he's getting a little worried here because this paranoid guy realizes that his days on the throne may be limited if the Messiah, the real king, has been born. So let's pick up the action then as, as we actually, I want to jump over to Isaiah chapter 9 for just a second, then we'll hit back to, uh, to Matthew chapter 2. But Herod was probably familiar with this prophecy in Isaiah 9 that uh, Rich talked to us a couple of weeks ago and Kyle mentioned last week. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then here comes the key verse. And of his greatness and of his government uh, and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Hundreds of years before, God had promised that the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior of Israel, is going to come and reign on David's throne, which to a Jew was essentially saying, he's the one who is going to have the throne, the rulership of the nation of Israel. And so Herod realizes that as a result of the Messiah being on the scene, his days as king could be numbered, and he wasn't terribly excited about this situation. So we jump back to Matthew chapter 2, and we read, when King Herod heard this, he's disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Why? Because if the king is disturbed, and the king is a disturbed man who kills his own sons, so if he's disturbed, we're disturbed as well, because we don't know what he's going to do. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, this is the Jewish religious leaders, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they responded, for this is what the prophet has written. And then, and it continues, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. One of the ironies of this situation is this is like six to 18 to 20 months after Jesus was, was born, and the news was just getting to the king at this point. Why is it? Why did God allow the news to be delayed? You'd think that the political leaders would have heard, would have been among the first to hear, but it took 6, 12, 18 months or more for them to hear about Jesus' birth. And then they don't hear it from the shepherds. They don't hear it from the Jewish people. They hear it from a bunch of Gentiles who have come from a faraway land to come and worship the Jewish Messiah. And the irony is you've got these Gentiles, perhaps who are kings, who are at least leaders, they're coming to worship the Messiah and Herod is getting ready to try to kill him. Just unexpected nature there of Jesus' birth. Let's continue on in the story. So Herod called the Magi secretly and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child, his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream to go back to Herod, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So Herod, true to his nature, when he finds out when, roughly when, the, when uh, Jesus had been born, he said, you know what, I'm taking no chances I'm having all the boys 
who were two years old and under killed. So Jesus must have been somewhere between six months and 18, 20 months or, or so old at that time. And we learn elsewhere that, uh, that Joseph and Mary took Jesus and they fled to Egypt so that they'd be safe from the situation. But as a result of Herod's paranoia, he ends up killing hundreds of young boys in order to try to protect his throne. And so that rather than rejoicing and wanting to worship this newborn king the way that the Gentiles did, Herod does everything he can to kill him. Who would have expected that kind of of, of a reception for the Messiah? And if you step back and with the hindsight of, of 20 centuries in between then and now, you look back and you say, in the first century, everybody at that time, when Jesus was born, everybody knew who Herod was. And nobody but a couple of shepherds and a few Gentiles knew who Jesus was. 2,000 years later, everybody knows who Jesus is. And Herod's little more than a footnote in the story of Jesus' birth. And the irony of that situation, the unexpected nature of that, and the way in which God has just totally reversed what was going on at that time. It's pretty amazing when you, when you think about that. So Israel is looking for a deliverer. They're looking for a military person. They're looking for a, a political deliverer. They're looking for a charismatic person who's going to unite them, bring them together so that they can rise up and overthrow Rome. And instead, God gives them this little baby who's born in a barn. First crib is a feed trough. He's born to an unwed mother from a working class family in an obscure situation. And then you've got the political leadership trying to kill him. It's absolutely not what the Jewish people would have been expecting. God did not give them what, what they expected, but instead, he gave them so much more, and he gave them something that was so much better. And he does the same thing in, in our lives, too. You know, we're always looking for relief from the situations in which we find ourselves, our circumstances. We're looking for a better economic situation, we're looking for a better political situation. We're looking for a better relationship situation. We're looking for improvement on our health and and on and on and on. And those are good things. And sometimes God does give us those things that we're looking for. And eventually, God is ultimately going to give Israel the deliverer that she's looking for. But it didn't happen at that time. It's going to happen sometime in the future. But what God did with Israel was give them something that they totally did not expect, but something that met an even greater need than they could have imagined. And God does the same thing with us. What if our greatest need isn't physical? What if our greatest need is not relief from the circumstances in which we find ourselves? What if our greatest need is not more money or a better job or a better political situation or a better economic situation or better health, or whatever it is. What if our greatest need is not in the physical realm, but it's ultimately in the spiritual realm? What if it's something so much deeper 
than what we think that it ought to be. And that's the kind of God that we have. Uh, I was reading, or I ran across again, a poem that I had read many, many years ago. It was written by a man uh, named Roy Lesson, who founded, and you may be familiar with the company, Dayspring Greeting Cards. He founded this company a couple of decades ago. And he wrote a great poem, and I've kind of modified it a little bit to fit our situation just a little bit better. And I want to read that to you. He says, if our greatest need had been educational, God would have sent us a teacher. If our greatest need had been military, God would have sent us a general. If our greatest need had been medical, God would have sent us a doctor. But our greatest need was relational, so God sent us his son. Our greatest need is not economic, it's not military, it's not political, it's not financial, it's not physical. It's relational. And, and it's not so much our relationships with one another. It's our relationship with the creator, with the king of kings, with the Lord of lords, with the God who made us. Our greatest need is for a right relationship with God and a restored relationship with God. And if we look back at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 that we read earlier, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then here's the key line, Prince of Peace. And as Rich mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the peace we often see as peace with one another, human peace between ourselves. But what God is ultimately saying is that this Prince of Peace is the one who's going to bring peace between God and humanity, between us and our creator. And when the angels announced uh, Jesus' birth to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, they, it says, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And so the angels take the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, of the Prince of Peace, and they say to the shepherds, the one who's going to bring peace, the one who's going to bring peace, not so much necessarily with Rome, but with one who's greater than Rome, with the creator of the universe, is here. The Messiah is here. He's bringing peace between God and man. And God knows that our greatest need is for peace with him, for a right relationship with him. And that's what he gives us in Jesus. So I want to I close by asking you a couple of questions. A couple of questions that I'd like for you to use over the next, what's it, about 10 days until Christmas, next week and a half, to take a few minutes each day uh, and, and ask yourself, each of these two questions. First one is, what if God knows my greatest need and it's deeper than I think? What if God knows my greatest need and it's so much deeper than I think? I think my greatest need is, is for a better job. I think my greatest need is to get into a particular college. I think my greatest need is to, and on and on and on. What if God really knows my greatest need. And it's something that I'm not even thinking about. It's so much deeper 
than I could imagine it is. So that's the first question. Second question is, who is Jesus to me? Who do I think Jesus is? Do I view Jesus as that cute little baby lying in a manger, not in a feed trough, because that's so, you know, that's so pedestrian, but you know, this oh little town of Bethlehem kind of perfect scene. Is that how I view Jesus? Do I view him as a as a great teacher? Do I view him as an inspirational example? Do I view him as a vending machine that if I put in the right coin in the form of a prayer, he's going to give me the particular things that I'm asking for? Or do I view him as the king of kings and lord of lords? Do I view him as the prince of peace, as the one who's paved the way to meet what is really my deepest need, and that is for a restored relationship with God? God doesn't always give us what we expect. He didn't give Israel what they expected. They expected a military or political uh, Messiah. And instead, he gave them one who's going to restore their relationship with their creator. Sometimes God gives us what we expect. Sometimes he gives us the particular things that we ask for. Sometimes we get a new job. Sometimes we get better health. Sometimes we get, and it goes on and on and on. But God always gives us what we need. So as you're, as you're looking forward to Christmas in the next week or so, as we're in the days leading up to Christmas, take some time to ask yourself those two questions, to think about the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, whom God has given us. God knows our greatest need, and he's met that need in the person of his Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so over the next days and and week and a half or so, let's turn our hearts toward him, let's focus on him, and let's thank God for the incredible gift that he's given us in meeting our deepest needs. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for, I thank you for the fact that you know so much better than I do what my deepest need is. I often think it's physical. I often think it's financial. I often think it's health. I often think it's whatever it is. And it's so easy to forget that our deepest need, our greatest need is to have a restored relationship with you. And I thank you that, that you met that need in the person of your son. And, and Father, I pray for myself, I pray for each of us that in these next days leading up to Christmas with all of the busyness, with all the shopping, the decorating, the concerts, the cooking, the food, the Christmas cards, all of what's going on, I pray that you would enable us to, to focus on you and to really consider what if you know what our deepest need is, and it's so much greater than we think. And what if you have met that need in the person of your son? And Father, I pray that as we meditate on these things, as we think about these things, as we pray about them, we would more and more and more be drawn to you and that we would worship you for who you are and for all that you've done. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming out, and uh, we'll hope to see you later on this week and next weekend at the Christmas concerts.